Over the next two weeks, I want to go back to the book of Acts because we're using it as the framework for getting through all the New Testament letters. We do all this in about a four-year time period, uh, Sunday mornings. Today, though, I want to start in the Gospel of Matthew with what is referred to as the Great Commission because this is what Jesus told his apostles to do. The book of Acts explains how they carried it out, which is why we need to be looking at the book of Acts as lessons as to how to carry out the Great Commission. Now, I want to start with us verbalizing the Great Commission. Now, a lot of you have got this already memorized in some other translation, but I decided I wanted to do my own translation for you to join me with this morning. Maybe a fresh wording might help you think about it a little bit more as we delve into the next part of our study. So join me together. These are all the words of Jesus. All authority in heaven and upon earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all the ethnic groups, immersing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all of whatsoever I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you all the days that remain until the completion of the ages." That was what Jesus told his apostles to do. Not just the twelve, he also told Paul that he needed to be taking the gospel wherever it was he went. And so we've been looking at Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, last year, we looked at the first missionary journey, which took him from the big church at Antioch all through the lower center of what we call Turkey today. And everywhere he went, he shared first with the Jews and then with the Gentiles because the Jewish people were the most prepared to hear what he had to say. Then, after we have a little bit of crisis go on uh, that gets resolved, we come back for a second missionary journey. And the Apostle Paul makes his way back through those same central South Turkey places. And then when he leaves there... He tries to go into Asia, but God won't let him. Then he tries to go northward, and God won't let him go there either. And so God herds him down to the shore at Troas, where he meets someone named Dr. Luke, who is the one writing all these stories down. So today, let's continue with the second missionary journey, starting at Troas, Acts chapter number 16, verse number 9. Acts chapter 16, verse number 9. And I have to take a story approach today because these are stories. And then we try to learn some lessons from what we see in these stories. It says in verse number 9 that at Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now think about that. Paul had gone to bed 
thinking about why won't God let us go into Asia Minor? Why won't God let us go up into Bithynia and Pontus? Why has he got us here at this city of Troas? Well, now he has his answer. God wants him to go across the water to Europe, to Macedonia. Verse number 10, when he had seen the vision, immediately we, do you see the change in pronoun there? That's Dr. Luke, who's joined the team. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us. Notice the pronoun there. Dr. Luke is not just a physician. He's not just somebody that's annotating this story uh, as a historian. He is actually an evangelist himself. He is a preacher of the gospel too. That God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and then on the next day, following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. Macedonia used to be Greek, but now it has Roman presence there. There's still plenty of Greeks, but the Romans have actually been operating in this region for quite some time. So much so that a whole bunch of the veterans of the Roman army uh, took their, their retirement here at Philippi. And they were given not just simply their final payments, they were given land. And they were given citizenship. And so Philippi grew up as a Roman colony. The people living there were considered Roman citizens, just like the people that lived in Rome. So this is a very special city uh, for Roman people. And it has its own unique culture. But there's Jewish people there, kind of. There's not a synagogue. There's not ten adult men with families that would be required to actually have a synagogue. There's less than that. And so when you don't have a synagogue, whatever Jewish people might be in that city would try to agree to meet at a location where it was near running water. Well, there's a river just on the east side of Philippi. You see it on the right side of the screen of the picture I put up here. And the next verse tells us this. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And so we sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled. So it turns out, yes, there were some people that claimed to be Jewish, claimed to have a connection to the Jewish faith. Most of them, perhaps all of them, were ladies. And they were meeting as typical, by the riverside, outside the gate. And so Paul and Barnabas, excuse me, Paul and uh, Silas, as was their tradition, tried to start with them first. This is a lesson we've talked about multiple times. We need to target people that already have some sort of desire and connection to know God. 
They should be the primary people that we take the gospel to, that we have our conversations with. Because they are the most prepared to make the commitment. And so that's who Paul starts talking to. And it says in here, verse 14, that there was a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. So she's actually from the mainland. She's from over in Asia Minor, one of the places where Paul had tried to go but couldn't. And we are told, furthermore, that she was a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God. So she is not ethnically Jewish. She is, she is of non-Jewish background, genetically. But she has embraced the Jewish faith as her own. And she is a traveling saleswoman. Thyatira is known to be the place where they make purple dyed clothing. And so she is an importer of all that stuff over here at a Roman colony city in Macedonia. And it seems as if she spends about half of her time back at home getting the product ready, and the other half of the time it's over here where she's selling the product. Because all Roman people have the right to wear a little bit of purple on their clothing. It was one of the signature things of being a Roman citizen. How much purple showed, showed where you were placed in Roman society. So she's got a good thing going here, selling her purple clothing. And she was listening to Paul. And so the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What was he speaking about? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. And then he probably talked about those Jewish scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to those same scriptures. And he was seen alive by many reliable witnesses. And Paul would be able to say, and I'm one of them. I can tell you my testimony of meeting the resurrected Jesus. And then they would continue with this idea of all men and women everywhere being called to repent of their sins, to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to be immersed, immersed into his death and his resurrection, to be filled with his Holy Spirit, to be taught all the things that he taught us, to be part of the church. That's what Paul is preaching on this day. This is what Paul is teaching to this little group. And it says that she believed she accepted it. Verse number 15, when she and her household had been immersed, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, when they first arrived, they just found paid lodging somewhere. But now, their first convert, a woman a businesswoman of prominence, a, a woman that's got more than enough cash to keep two houses going in a year, she says, why don't you come and live at my complex? Come live at my residence, as long as you're here, and I'll make sure you get fed and make sure you get taken care of, and you can preach the gospel to God's heart content. And so they did. Verse number 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer. So now Luke tells the story of something that happens a little while later. We don't know how long later. Paul 
and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they're all going to this place where people are already interested in hearing the gospel. And they're expanding on the information there. Because again, that's our target audience. That's our main target audience. People with an interest in hearing more. And so while they're on their way one day, this happens. It says that it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So this is not a con job that's going on here. This woman is actually tapped into the spirit world. We don't know how it happened. We do know that she is a slave, so she either owed a debt or her parents owed a debt or her city owed a debt. Somehow she got into slavery of that day. And her indebtedness contract was sold to some people that knew they could sell her services of tapping into the spirit world. She would maybe go into a trance or somehow contact the spirit world and the spirit world would tell her things that would not be available by normal means. Because these demons, these these demonic spirits, keep intel on what's going on in the world. And so she has got this issue that she wants out of. One of the things that we see in Scripture is, from time to time, people realize this is a bad thing I'm involved in. I need to get out of this. And when that happens, that is typically when the demon becomes very oppressive, starts making the person hurt themselves. Well, this woman has not quite got to that point. But she is aware that the only way you get out of this sort of contract with the evil spirit world is you have to have an authoritative third party sever the relationship. And she sees now, because she's tapped into the spirit world, she knows things. She sees in Paul and these other guys the possibility of getting free. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, is that all accurate information right there? Absolutely. Absolutely it is accurate. So why is it that Paul and the others get ticked off about it? Because of the form it takes. This woman is following them to and from the place of prayer and teaching. And the whole time that it's going on, and she happens to be present, she's saying all this stuff loud and repeatedly. Now, how many of you would love it if somebody came in here this morning, and they sat down on the back row, and they kept saying, Hey, that Thomas guy, he's really telling you things from the Bible. You need to listen to that Thomas guy. Hey, He's talking about more things that you should be paying attention to. How would you like to have the sermon be punctuated with that all morning? Any of you want to say you'd love that? How many of you would be like looking around behind you, giving the person a dirty look, wanting somebody to do something about that, right? That's what's happening here. She continued doing this for many days, not just one time, repeatedly. 
But Paul, and she continued doing this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. I can guarantee you if somebody was doing that on Sunday morning, I would be annoyed. Uh, and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. Now, I can't do that. But Paul could. And it brought an end to her being enslaved by that spirit. But it also ended her connection to the spirit world. When her masters saw that her hope of profit was gone, when she goes back home that day, and she has appointments probably lined up, she can't help the people. I, I don't know where your lost purse is. I, I don't know who killed your chicken. I, I don't know. I, I, they're not talking to me anymore. Her masters can't charge for her services anymore because her services aren't available. And they're not happy. It says they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. So down into the Agora, down into the Roman Forum, down to the place where trials take place, and they brought them up on charges. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. A little anti-Semitism going on here, right? Uh, they don't have a synagogue in town, uh, possibly because uh, they don't really want a Jewish synagogue there. Because Jewish people don't believe in the Roman gods. And it says here that they were also saying, they're proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. And so the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Uh, the Roman punishment uh, for corporal punishment was to basically be spanked publicly across your back with a something like a bamboo stick or a bundle of bamboo sticks. And it hurt. And it left marks. But the whole idea was, if you got spanked publicly like that, maybe you would not engage in that behavior any longer. There's just one really big problem here. You can't do that to Roman citizens without a high-placed Roman official ordering it. And there is not a high enough Roman official in this place to order it. They just violated the law big time, but they don't know it. It says that the, uh, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, he threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So he's, he's in charge of keeping track of prisoners for the city, and he just believes these guys must be really bad if I'm being told to keep them super secure. So I'm putting them in the high security area, and I'm locking them in place. Now, about midnight... Paul and Silas were sitting around griping and complaining about how their rights had been violated and talking about how they needed to engage a lawyer and they were going to sue these people into oblivion. Is that what it says? No, of course it doesn't. It says they were praying and they were singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So they have decided wherever you're at, you share the gospel with whomever you are. 
If they need it, you share it. And so that's what they do. And while they're doing it, suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were open. The frames warped in such a way that the locks popped. And everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, I can't give you a, a naturalistic explanation of that. Even an earthquake shouldn't be able to pop handcuffs off. But this one does. When the jailer had been roused out of the sleep, uh, he had seen that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Uh, why is he committing suicide? Because if he let any prisoners go, the Roman law said he will receive their punishment and then eventually be killed horribly. And he's like, I'm short-circuiting this. I'll go out easy. I'll cut my own throat. And uh, before that can happen... Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. So the jailer called for lights, he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he'd brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, you know exactly what he'd been hearing that he asked that question, right? He must have been hearing some of the things that Paul and Silas had been talking about to the prisoners about Jesus dying and rising again, and all these other things about the gospel. So they weren't griping about losing their rights and having lawsuits. They were talking about Jesus and trying to figure out a way to help people that were enslaved to sin. And this man, the jailer, falls into that category, even though he's a free man. And he realizes, I need help. What must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. So it's not just an offer for you. Anybody around you that will believe in Jesus can also be saved. This is a deal for anyone, anywhere, at any time. And so they spoke the word of Jesus or the Lord to him together with all that were in his house. So here we are, wee hours of the morning, and they're talking to their jailer. And so he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, so he was kind to them and said, let me help you with that. He hadn't done that before, but now he feels, I need to do something for you because you're doing something big for me. So he washed them physically, and guess what they did for him? And immediately he was immersed, and all his household. They arose and were baptized, were immersed, washing away their sin as they called on the name of the Lord. And then he brought them into his own house, and he set food before them, and they rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with all his whole household. So this man's life changed just like that. Because these guys took a chance and opportunity afforded them by their bad circumstances to share the gospel with someone. They kept their eyes open, their ears open. Now, when the day came, and all of us have to smile sideways about this, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. Apparently, you know, overnight they figured that was good enough. Maybe they'll leave town now and we won't have to worry about them anymore. 
But the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, Well, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out. You can go in peace. And Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans, they've thrown us into prison, and now they're going to send us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. This time they did assert their Roman privileges. But I think they were actually looking for more of an opportunity to possibly make a difference in those magistrates' life. Didn't present itself for the text, but it was possible. So the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans. And they came, they appealed to them, and when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Please, can we just forget about this? Could you guys just move on? We'd really not like to have to deal with this. So they went out to the prison, and they entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, and they encouraged them, they departed. Now, one of the things that Jesus told his apostles was, if you run headlong into resistance, dust the dust off of you and just go somewhere and start fresh. And so that's what they do. We understand that sometimes all of us, we will run into a big barricade with someone that does not want to hear anything from us about Jesus. It is not our responsibility to keep pounding at them. In fact, it goes against the scripture. We as Christians are not tasked with forcing people to become followers of Jesus. We are simply told to live lives in front of them that will bring the testimony of Jesus in front of them and give them the chance to hear from us the gospel message. After that, it's between them and God as to whether or not they're going to accept it. Our bigger thing is move on. Don't let this, this opportunity that's now come to a barricade stop you from getting started on another one. Now, it is interesting. In chapter 17, it says, Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Did you notice that we changed the pronoun again? Guess what? Luke did. Dr. Luke stayed in Philippi and presumably kept preaching and teaching because you know who the barricaded people were? Paul and Silas. Sometimes when we run up against a barricade, it's only for us. Someone elsewhere nearby doesn't have that same impediment. That's why I always tell people, if you run up headlong against resistance with somebody about Jesus, move on, but pray. Pray for whoever it is that might still be able to talk to them. That's good teaching. That's good practical application. So, we've moved on now to Thessalonica, which is a city by the sea. And uh, Thessalonica also is Roman in a lot of its form, and I've got a little image up there for you to kind of look at while we're thinking about this. But there is a Jewish synagogue here. So verse number two says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them, to the synagogue of the Jews. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence 
that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So once again, our pragmatic concept is, you start with the people that are most ready to listen and talk to them about Jesus from the Bible, from God's word. And so Paul does this for the better part of a month, about three weeks worth. He's back and forth at the synagogue, and when he's not in the synagogue, he's out in the forum or wherever it is they do public stuff. Because in this culture, they had areas where you talked about things, and everybody was listening, and there was an exchange of ideas. Kind of a speaker's corner sort of thing. It was roughly equivalent to what goes on sometimes in our internet exchanges today. A lot of the forums that we have today don't take place in person. They take place in the ethernet or in the in the cloud, where we have opportunities to comment on things that people have said. It's one of the reasons I'm posting constantly on my Facebook feed about Jesus things, about Christian things, because I want to give people on that forum a chance to see it and perhaps even say, hey, what about this? And then I can engage them in a public way, just like these guys were doing. And I hope you would do the same. It's one of the reasons for the radio program going over the public air. Because it's not all Christians who tune in to Christian radio. There are some people looking for answers. And that public forum gives them the chance to hear it. And so this is Paul's way of dealing with it. He goes to the Jewish synagogue, but he's also doing stuff out in the public as well. Now, verse number four. Because we already know what he's preaching about. He's preaching about Jesus. He's keeping it real in the center. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. And all this in accordance with Scripture. Some of them were persuaded. Now, some means what? Not all. So not everybody is going to believe in Jesus, no matter how well we do the presentation. Isn't that true? We're not going to get 100% response. And so some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. This is the beginning of the church at Thessalonica. This is the beginning of the assembly of the saints, where Jesus said, after you've made disciples of all ethnic groups, by immersing them into the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you then turn around and you teach them everything they need to know from Jesus. New Testament teaching is an important part of church. And so, it says here that the Jews, we're talking about the unbelieving Jews, verse 5, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So, if you can't beat the argument, get violent. Attack the people. That is very often the way that people react. If you're not going to do things my way, 
I will consider you my enemy and I will annihilate you just because I can't win over your argument. It's not appropriate. But this is what happened to the church consistently in the book of Acts. Paul in particular. And so what does he do? It says in verse number 6, when they did not find them, Paul and Silas, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus! And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things. So if you can't get at the main messenger... You go after anybody that supports that main messenger. And so they try to cause trouble for the local who is supporting the gospel. And uh, it gets this bad. Verse number 9. When they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Basically, the authorities in Thessalonica told Jason, whose house the evangelist team is staying at. Our order is that these guys have to leave town because they're causing trouble, because they're stirring up the people in ways we don't like. And we're going to take a certain amount of money from you right now, and you will forfeit it if this order is not followed. If these guys are still in your house in a certain amount of time, you lose this money, and we'll even talk about further charges putting the pressure on. And so, Paul and Silas follow the rules that Jesus gave. When you personally come up against a barricade, you move on. Because it doesn't do any good to beat your head against a brick wall. So the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So, they go just about a day's trip away to another town. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, the synagogue at Berea is a World War II historical site. It's not used as a church building anymore or a synagogue building, but it is more than likely built on the ancient site of the synagogue we're talking about right here. It says, when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Why? Because you go to the people most prepared to hear the gospel first. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Folks, the people we want to engage the quickest are the ones that love God's word. The ones who already believe that there is important stuff in here. Now, they may not believe all the ins and outs of it yet, but they are at least willing to sit down and reason together. This is why Bible studies, online, offline, radio, in-person, live stream, whatever it takes, we've got to make these things available to folks that have an interest in knowing more. That is our first step and can be our most effective step because they are ready. 
They just need someone to lovingly take them across the finish line. And so these guys were more noble because they already believed the Scripture and studied it to see if the things about Jesus were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, but the story continues as it's been doing. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, this is one of the things we're going to always know about. Some people are not going to be happy that you're no longer talking about Jesus in front of them. They won't be happy until you quit talking about Jesus altogether to anyone. They will make your life miserable if that's what it takes for you to shut up as far as they're concerned. Some societies have legislated this idea that Christianity cannot be publicly proclaimed. It all has to be private. Here in the United States, though, we have not got to that point. And so we need to take the availability of sharing the gospel with anyone and everyone, everywhere, anywhere, that will listen. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea, also they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Notice that this time Paul is the only one that moves on. The others seem to be not the target of the hatred. They're able to stick around. And this is another one of the things that we'll find, is that some of you will be much better at sharing the gospel with your friends and your neighbors than I would ever be. Because they would object to anything that comes out of my mouth. Some of them would say, well, he's just paid to say that. You, though, have a different relationship with him. And you could be able to say some of the exact same things that I would say, and it would be thought of, accepted as a possibility. And so that is why preachers can't be the only ones preaching and teaching. It's got to be everyone. So what happens with Paul? Well, this sets the story for next week. It says that uh, they took him out of sea, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. They put him on a boat and took him to the main city of ancient Greece, the city of philosophy and wisdom and uh, Greek theology. And then they dumped him there. Well, not exactly dumped him. It says that uh, they, they conducted him as far as Athens and then receiving a command from him for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, there are synagogues in Athens. But Paul goes a totally different route in this majority unbelieving city. He does something that we have not talked about extensively yet. And that is, the gospel 
can't just simply be exposed to those that already have an interest in it. We have to also find some way to develop a taste of interest in the gospel with those that have never heard anything about it. And so next week when we come back together, and I hope you'll read ahead, we are going to talk about how Paul evangelizes those that don't yet have an interest in Jesus. Because all of us need to keep our eyes open for that possibility as well. With all of that, let's pray. Father, I thank you for Luke getting these things written down at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Lord, there's just so much in here that tells us how to evangelize. That we just need to be able to keep our ears and our eyes open for those that already have an interest and share with them more about what the scripture says. And we know, Father, that sometimes that's going to be rejected, it's going to be resisted, and it's going to cause trouble. And we know that we can't force anybody to become a Christian. Help us to be ready to move on to the next possible opening. And to pray for those that have hard hearts, that somewhere, somehow, you'll be able to soften it through some other brother or sister in Christ. Prepare our hearts all this week for next week's lesson from the, the gospel or the book of Acts as to how we need to develop a taste for Jesus, even amongst those that have never even thought of him before. Let us live such good lives among these folks that they will see our good works and want to give glory to the God and the Father of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.